This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer, current media and entertainment attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, new fan of what I may say is one of the best shows I've seen in a long time, Paul. The Diplomat on Netflix, starring Carrie Russell, made by Deborah Kahn, who is the executive producer of Home. Was she in Serendipity? Yeah, yeah. So, well, no. Carrie Russell was from uh, Felicity. Felicity. And then she did The Americans. And then she's now doing The Diplomat. She's an executive producer. Deborah Kahn, who is the executive producer of Homeland, Vinyl, Grey's Anatomy. She was a producer on The West Wing. She was also a writer on The West Wing, the creator of the show. And so I would say it's like it's like this perfect balance of a modern day Netflix show. If The West Wing was made today with a little bit more of um, with the Netflix budget, the nice thing is that it takes place overseas. It's all about the foreign service. I love it. I think it's phenomenal. I watched it with my mom. I was in D.C. visiting family. We watched it in one night uh, and the next two nights. Two nights we watched it. Phenomenal show. Wow. So you couldn't turn away. It's like smart. It's engaging. I mean, it, it's international. The writing is good. People have said that about Better Call Paul. Um, <laughs> those exact Adjectives. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if people are binging Better Call Paul in the same way that I binged The Diplomat. Highly recommend it. It's very smart, but it's also fun. I don't know how to describe it. It's nice to see a show that takes place internationally that's still an American show. I always love shows like that. I will check it out. I'll add it to the list. <laughs> yeah, keep your list is getting longer and longer, by the way. Yeah, I know. Well, it's, yeah, it's unsustainably long, but... Uh, you know, what am I going to do? Uh, so it is, it's Earth Week or Earth Day. I guess it's, when you guys are hearing it, it'll be the week after. But really, every day should be Earth Day. The only reason I bring it up is because, well, obviously, I think, you know, we should, I'm a big environmentalist person. I think we should do our best to keep this planet chugging and going as long yeah. as we can. And it's paradise. I hope it stays that way. But I also do a lot of work on climate-focused causes, most of it is pro bono because it's not really something I do for money. It's really more just for because I find it fulfilling. But one of my pro bono clients came to the office this week and spoke about they do a concert series. And cool. so tentatively, fingers crossed, the hope is that they will be um, doing a concert broadcast off the side of the UN in September to raise awareness. And they've done this in the past. They've broadcast concerts from like St. Peter's Basilica, Empire State Building, they get like billions of impressions. And they're they're also thinking about doing a Times Square advertising takeover. So all the billboards in Times Square would show their 
messaging for like a, a, a day or for 90 seconds or something. So I'm helping them with that. They're called Purpose Media Ventures. And then I also, I'm on the junior board of a nonprofit up in, in Manhattan that you know focuses on converting basically green spaces and, and restoring them and turning them into operational farms. So we have like tomatoes, eggplants, okra, and I think they have bees and all kinds of stuff. So uh, it's called Harlem Grown. Great organization. They had their Earth Day stuff last week. So I just want to plug them because I do think it's on all of us to, to do our part. Paul, you continue to impress me with all these amazing things you do. I actually feel quite useless now listening to this. I recycle and I thought that was good. You're doing pro bono No, recycling's work. good. And you are restoring community gardens. I need to step it up, I think. Hey, well, you know, every Saturday between April to October, just take a ride up and we'll go. We'll do some uh, do some gardening and we'll give back. Okay, I'm definitely committing to this. I'm committing to this. I will come up once at least. Okay. I love gardening. I love flowers. So, you know, count me in. I will. I'll follow up with you on that. So um, let's jump in this week. So episode... I think this was 204. We talked about music catalog sales. We did a deep dive on Justin Bieber's uh, $200 million catalog sale. And there's another story this week, which is in a genre that is actually my preferred genre, which is the dance music EDM genre. Armin Van Buren, who, for those who don't know, because I guess he's not necessarily a household. I mean, he is if you like dance music. Foundational, pioneering trance DJ from the Netherlands. I think he was actually in school... To be a lawyer. Oh, really? Believe it or not. I, I met someone, I think, also at my firm in our Netherlands office who was a law professor of his. I think I need to confirm the facts on this. But apparently he would like leave class early Friday, like Friday afternoon, and then just go tour all over Europe for 48 hours and then show up on Monday. And he was like be, you know, building his career as a DJ, but his fallback was to be a lawyer. And then obviously DJing took off. And so he never became a lawyer. That's my understanding of it. That's interesting. He came up with like Tiesto and like those big DJs in like the early 2000s. Like that's when it was really kind of blowing up, right? I feel like there's a few other DJs that had really big names like that from Europe. Tiesto is more like progressive house. And he's, I think he's he's more on the pop side of things. But sure, yes, Tiesto is foundational uh, DJ and, you know, Ocean Lab above and beyond. There's a handful and it depends on the genre because like EDM is actually a bunch of subgenres. There's trance, house, progressive house, deep house, techno, future house, dubstep, wow. trap. Like there's a lot of different subgenres. So anyway, <laughs> Armin has a, a label called Armada Music, which he started in 2003. Yep. And they represent a lot of really good trance and progressive house DJs like himself, Ferry Corsten, Artie, Audion, Loud Luxury, Cedric Gervais. And the CEO of the label is um, Michael Pyron, I believe is how you pronounce it. And so between their roster of artists, they currently have 40,000 songs that they control. They they have about a billion streams a month on the digital streaming platforms. Wow. And so what they're doing is they just raised $100 million from Pinnacle Financial yep. to do uh, catalog acquisitions. And so what they're they're thinking, you know, we talked about in 204 how music royalties are really, you know, it's a popular asset class. A lot of private equity funds are getting in and investing in music royalties because it's recession-proof and the thesis is that music is always going to be monetized, especially in social media and trailers and people just listening. And, you know, good music yeah. doesn't fall out of favor, basically, is the thesis. So 
Armin and, and Armada's view is, so there's a lot of activity in pop music and classic rock, as we talked about, like, you know, Bob Dylan and Justin Bieber, and, and there's like literally hundreds of catalog sales. But they think EDM and dance is an underexplored area for catalog sales. So that's going to be their strategy. And there's a synergy there because Armada, as one of the top, they describe themselves as the biggest independent dance music label, although there's a handful of others like Spinning. They're like, well, we know the industry, you know, we know the trends, we know what's popular now, but we also have 20 years of data on classic tracks. And, you know, the there's a comp like 90s yeah. uh, dance music is making a comeback in a lot of clubs now. So they think they're uniquely positioned to mine value out of back catalogs and also understand based on their the data they get from their label how to make good business deals in this and, and buy catalogs at a good price. So they raised a hundred million. They think they're going to raise another half a billion. And Pinnacle's got like forty billion dollars in assets, so they're backed by a pretty big. They're, they're they're large. They're focused on sports, entertainment, media. So this is like right up their alley. And Armin is a. I'm excited. So the the fund is called Beat, which is um, best ever acquired tracks, which I like. I like Armin a lot. I would say he's consistently in the top ten of um you know DJs that I'd like to see if I'm going to, I'm not my festival days are pretty much over but back <laughs> when I was going to them you know when the lineup was announced you saw Armin he would typically be headlining like a Friday Saturday Sunday closing the show or like 8 or 9 p.m. show slot and like you'd look forward to him because he was always bringing he has popular songs but then he was always bringing wrinkles in that like you hadn't heard before because I do think he really is a master of the craft so to see him running a catalog, I'm excited by it. And they've already bought two catalogs. One was Artie, who's a progressive house, Russian DJ based in LA, and Kevin Saunderson, who's a Detroit techno DJ. I'm not that familiar with Detroit techno, but apparently he's a legend. I just think it's cool to see you know, where music has come so far and seeing that this is an asset that more and more want to, people want to buy. They think that the value is going to continuously go up and now it's just going into different genres. So it's cool to see. It's a fun thing to like learn about. So it's cool. Uh, especially, I know that you're, uh, what, what would you call it? Like you're a fan of electronic music, EDM. You could say EDM or dance. Like, I guess it's it's hard to say what the umbrella category is, but I like most of it. There are some things where I, I, I'm like, I don't really care for some subgenres, but sure. like I generally like it all. The dance music industry is estimated to be just under 10 billion this year, and it's, it's forecast to double in the next 10 years. And so I'm out of the scene now. It's you know as I've gotten older, but like there was a time where you know I was going to shows every weekend. Yeah. And so it's good to see that things are still growing, even though I'm. I, I mean, I see it. I get all the emails for like all the clubs that you know they're trying to sell tickets and bottle service or whatever. So. It doesn't seem like it's stopping anytime soon. Yeah, very cool. And, and it'll be interesting to see what else pops up and who else is starting to buy more and more catalogs and who else gets into the game. Paul, let's take a break and let's get back and we'll talk about what's going on at BuzzFeed. Paul, so big news this week in media, BuzzFeed is shutting down its news division, which was highly, highly praised. The reason being they're doing job cuts, 15%. They're cutting costs, uh, cutting uh, their staff. And in that case, it ends up being the news 
room is being shut down by BuzzFeed. And it's been celebrated as something like, you know, the newsroom at BuzzFeed, Pulitzer Prize winning. It started much later during BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed originally started out doing what was shareable content on the web, memes, cat videos, you name it. They were masters at YouTube. Um, Lists. Yeah, lists, like quizzes. Lists. Yeah, lists, quizzes. And Jonah yeah. Peretti, who is the co-founder of the Huffington Post, who started BuzzFeed, um, really wanted to get into news and doing investigative journalism. And like I said, it was highly praised. I actually know a gentleman, Alex Kantrowitz, who was um, a tech reporter at BuzzFeed, investigative journalist. He used to interview Mark Zuckerberg all the time. And it's unfortunate to see because, you know, digital advertising is a really, really tough business to get into. News, for the most part, survives now on subscriptions. If you look at The Atlantic, The New York Times, et cetera, we're seeing a change coming in media. It's just really, really hard to sustain something like that. And the news division wasn't profitable. It was losing money. And just to give people an idea, BuzzFeed, I mean, VC backed during the hype of like when internet companies like BuzzFeed, like shareable content type companies were doing really well from right right around the 2010s. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then now it suffered so much. I mean, BuzzFeed was backed by a lot of money and then it went public via SPAC for 1.5 billion. It was valued around that. And now just to give people a sense of where it is, it's, it's around like 90 ish million dollars. That's the value of the company. No way. Yeah. 90 million. So the stock, the stock was down 11% after the news. It's trading around like 67 cents. When it went public via SPAC, it was trading around $10. So that's just tough. It's wow. really, really, really tough to be in media right now or media from like that standpoint, creating content that you sell ads on. Um, you know, you have to sell subscriptions, but there's so much competition. It's so expensive. Oh, now make. you tell me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it, look, it's a really, really hard business. No, I know. I've seen that firsthand. So, we were just funny. We were just talking about music and more importantly, streaming music and social media as like a growing business where everyone wants to invest. Now we're talking about, you know, these things that the twists and turns of media, right? So now we're talking about news and really media in general as a challenging category because ad sales are dropping. It's basically a subscription model. How much would people pay? For BuzzFeed News, I don't know. I mean, maybe that it was, as you said, it was never profitable, even though they did some really good work. Yeah. And, you know, Jonah, which I didn't realize he's Jordan Peele's brother in law. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, uh, Chelsea Peretti, Chelsea Peretti is married to Jordan Peele. Chelsea Peretti, who's on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, who's a comedian. I forget that they're, they're right. related. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's not often talked about, but the valuation has plummeted. He's looking to cut costs, and this is a division that was never profitable. And so even though he liked the team and liked, and believed in them, yeah. he was like, listen, I got to accept reality that this is not something that's going to you know bear fruit, and HuffingtonPost Post is profitable. So let's like right, put right. our news investment into HuffPost, which I understand. I don't think it is a function of the media, but I also think BuzzFeed in particular and internet media – was overly reliant. I mean, it's easy to say this in hindsight on social media as a distribution platform. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, in the early 2010s, when a lot of people were consuming news from Facebook and Twitter and getting links to articles, I'm sure their ad distribution was a lot higher than when that all basically, when that all stopped around yeah. when Trump got elected or shortly thereafter, yeah. right? And then the media started saying that, uh, mainstream media was saying that sites like BuzzFeed weren't, 
reliable and the media and the news was dangerous because it wasn't vetted and there were some a lot of things that were inaccurate were allowed to proliferate through social media because that this wasn't the content wasn't really moderated and so when that dried up they didn't really have another distribution strategy and people as you said they they weren't able to build a subscription model the tough thing with a lot of these media companies vox vice you name it i mean part of the issue is valuation it was a hype cycle media was really popular. They raised a ton of money. So they were like overvalued, overinflated. And that's just what happens. I mean, it's not to say that they're bad businesses. They just might not be the best venture backable businesses. And what ends up happening with that is that you'll see less and less companies like that get funded, but more independently, potentially like profitable business will stem up from that. Jonah Peretti said in an interview, uh, he was talking about what you were saying about distribution. And he said, even though he loved the work and mission that they were doing for news, uh, it made him quote unquote from the New York Times, slow to accept that the big platforms wouldn't provide the distribution or financial support required to support premium free journalism purpose for social media, as you said. And so they're essentially pivoting from a strategy like cutting costs down significantly. And, you know, I think he's very much focused on like what generative AI looks like for content and then having a staff of people working on top of that. I think that's a trend that we'll continuously see over the next few years. But yeah, I mean, they did win a Pulitzer Prize in 2021 for international reporting for stories that use satellite imagery to report on the Chinese government's detention of Muslims. So it's crazy that a site that was making cat memes and quizzes and lists won a Pulitzer Prize in 2021. I think it just goes to show how how committed they were to doing news. Well, they actually hired, you know, legit journalists and they had international bureaus. That's the thing. So I guess, you know, that wasn't their core business, but it was BuzzFeed News's core business. And, and the lists and the memes, I think, will live on through BuzzFeed. It's just the BuzzFeed News segment. Those people that were getting paid a salary to investigate and write articles, they're getting let go. But- the memes and stuff, I think you can basically, you don't need to pay someone to make those. Maybe you do, but not much. No, you're right. You actually probably won't need to pay anyone to make those uh, at some point. And I think at the end of the day, like talent now is if, if you know, unless you're getting paid well, at a, if you're a New York Times writer, et cetera, you can kind of go off on your own. I mean, there was like one of the most popular BuzzFeed channels was the Try Guys, which is, a, it was a group of friends that would try different things and, uh, you know, everything on the menu, whatever, whatever. They ended up like leaving BuzzFeed because their contracts were up and they took the IP with them and, and then they launched their own YouTube channel. So now they're like an independent media company and, and they do really, really well. Another BuzzFeed star is Quinta Brunson, who's the showrunner for Abbott Elementary. She's super, like she's just a rising star. She started on BuzzFeed as well. Ah, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I guess if BuzzFeed had um, her under contract for like 20 years, then they would be making yeah. money off of yeah. her talent. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it's interesting, Mesh, because what we're talking about is the people who investigated and wrote the articles are laid off. And our next topic after the break is potential writer strike. And again, we're talking about business profit and how much do you value the, the people who are writing the content? And that's coming to a head in Hollywood. We'll talk about it after the break. So, Mesh, we're going to kick it back. I'm going to refer to our fourth episode for <laughs> well, in a Better Call Paul, where we discussed a union conflict on a Netflix animated show. And, and so that was when we first discussed the topic. If anyone's curious, they can go back to episode four. But I'll just I'll do another introduction now. So 
Unions are collections of workers that essentially band together. They're in a similar industry or whatever, or a similar geography. They band together in order to negotiate collectively against their employers to improve their working conditions, whether that's pay or vacation or whatever. So it's basically a government-allowed collective bargaining organization that would, in theory, give workers better results than if they just tried to go to their employer and say, hey, pay me more. Yeah. Without the ability to restrict supply, they would be less effective. That's the theory. And so it could be considered collusion, antitrust, whatever, but unions are allowed to exist because you know we make exceptions or the, the law and federal and state law allows unions to exist. And they exist in all types of industries like schools, education, the doormen in New York City are unions. And it's really any non-managerial industry, a lot of trades, but they're a big part of Hollywood too. Yeah. There's SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, DGA, the Directors Guild, WGA, the Writers Guild, there's IATSE for crew. And the reason we're talking about it now is because this past week, the WGA, which has about 9,000 members, voted to authorize a strike. I think 95% of the people who voted voted in favor of authorizing a strike. And just to give you the, the background, so the WGA and the AMPTP, which is the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, AMPTP is a collection of all the major studios and streamers. So like Disney, NBC Universal, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, all the content companies, they collectively bargain with the various unions like DJ, WGA, SAG, um, and they create collective bargaining agreements that will govern for a period of years. So in this case, there's a union agreement between the WGA and the AMPTP that expires May 1st, and it sets minimum compensation, the budget thresholds for all different types of shows and movies, so high budget, streaming, network, theatrical. So there's all these different categories. And the last time there was a WGA strike was 2007. Seven. The last time there was a threatened strike was 2017. Yeah. And now there's another threatened strike. And the basic gist is that writers are saying that streaming is taking over and yep. companies like Netflix and, and Apple and the streamers, they're making a ton of money yep. uh, in the sense that their valuations are really high. And they're also making a lot of content. So 10 years ago, there were 288 shows. Now there's 600. Wow. And so the amount of content that's being made is increased, but the writers are actually making less, less. Yeah. overall because the series orders are shorter and they're trying to squeeze more from less time. And so, and I was reading this, the average salary of a writer from 10 years ago has gone down 4%, the average yeah. compensation yeah. Uh, in a year. And if you adjust that for inflation, it's actually down 23%. So although we hear about the massive deals for showrunners like sure. you know Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, Taylor Sheridan, the people who are getting nine-figure deals sure. because they command huge sums, the vast majority of writers are actually doing worse than they were a decade ago. And so they want better conditions. And so just what you're saying, the difference between now and then is that before streaming studios took over, from what I read, usually the way it would work was that you'd order 12 to 22 episodes of a season of TV, uh, which would you know create 40 weeks of work and there was a structure to it, uh, et cetera. Now with streaming, the pay has gone down, working conditions are more, and they're ordering not 12 to 22, but they're ordering like as few as six episodes. And they have what, what are called mini rooms. Studio, uh, a studio assembles a small group of writers to create a show before it gets greenlit and they pay minimum for that. And so from what I understand about this strike is that they want to 
renegotiate those terms and make sure that this is like all up to date um, for streaming. And as you said, that last strike in 2007 that lasted a hundred days, I mean, that cost the industry $2.1 billion. It was a, it was a big deal. I mean, if there's a strike, I think production stops uh, and things that are ongoing, but like shows that are daily don't occur because there's no one to write it. Right. So certain things like news is excluded and reality TV probably doesn't have a ton of WGA right. content uh, because you can make content that's not through a WGA, but let's let's just back up a little bit. So um, the studios, when they do a deal with the WGA, they sign this collectively bargain agreement. It's called a basic agreement. And it says that if you want to hire any of our talent, you have to agree to the terms of this basic agreement. And if you if you don't want to agree, then you don't have then you can't hire any talent. So if you want to say like the best 10,000 writers in the US are WGA members. Now, that's probably an inexact, right? Because right? there's probably really talented writers that aren't in the WGA. You can't hire any of them if unless you agree to all the WGA terms. So if you're a reality show and you don't need a WGA writer, you can keep going. Right. And if you're a news show, that's a t- separate union. And if you're some studios like Netflix and HBO in particular, they produce way ahead of time. Right, so they right. might have a year's worth of content that's already in the can before it's released. And movies are also done typically a year, or the writing and stuff is done maybe a year before they're released because you're focusing on post. Right, because if, if it's in production, you already have a script, et cetera, right? It's already, the writing's already done if you're already in production. So, I mean, there's also, there's a lot in that happens during production. So, for example, you know, with Marvel and, and other shows, there's there's actually what's called production writing, which is you're shooting, you're kind of improvising things right. on the fly, and like some parts of the script don't work and you want to punch it up and improve it. So there is actually a big component of production writing. And sometimes there's even post-production writing. There's fixing things and redoing when you're doing reshoots. But typically, most of the writing is done in advance. You're right. And if you're in post, you could probably finish a movie without a writer involved. But certain things like SNL, I was and late about to night say SNL. Shows, they yeah. need writers every yes, day, yes. right? They need writers to, to to make the shows, and certainly network television would slow down, right? If they don't have like months and months of shows already in the can, then they would need to that that would hurt, right? If there was a writer strike. But the other thing is a lot of this is it's a compromise, and so this could be a leverage play. So the agreement expires May 1st. Presumably the studios sent a proposal to the writers and said, okay, well, this is what we want to give you for the next three years. This is the percentage raise. These are the new floors. This is the working hours, whatever. And the writers, representatives probably looked at that proposal and they're like, this isn't good enough. We got a week left till May 1st. Just so you know, we're willing to strike when this thing um, expires. If they hadn't said that in the floor, like, well, either way, we'll yeah, get yeah, a deal yeah. done by May 1st, then they would have less leverage. But the studios have deeper pockets than the writers generally. That's how these things always work. So like if a writer, if this strike goes on for 100 days, the studios, yeah, they lose the revenue, but the writers, can they pay their rent? Can they pay their mortgage? Can they buy food, right? So, And it also impacts other industries because if you're not making these shows, then the directors aren't working, the crew isn't working, the actors aren't working. So it can have broader impacts. And then also the businesses, the ancillary businesses that support them, like the people who serve lunch. Like uh, like craft services. It it seems that what happened in 2007 when it lasted 100 days and you saw how much money it cost the industry, nobody wants that to happen. Uh, No one will let it go that far. I mean, 
you know, when it costs people billions of dollars. Well, the studios, I think they like their flexibility. I'll be honest with you. Like, I don't, I don't know how long it would drag out if it happens or if this is just bluffing, but the way it worked before, as you said, was you, you got on a, on a network show, you could have a 13 episode order or maybe a 22 or 26 episode order. And if you were in the writer's room, you were there for like a year or 40 weeks. So it was like all you needed to, you know, live for the year. Right. Basically. And so it was like a living wage. And the way it worked is like, you learned a lot. So you maybe in a 26 episode season, you may have only written two or three scripts for the episodes, but you were working on the other stuff and you were in the room with the showrunner and the, and the more senior writers. So like junior writers could, could come up, be a staff writer or an assistant and then they work their way up to a junior level producer, then a mid-level producer. Then maybe after a couple of years, they could be a showrunner on their own. That was how it worked before. So you got it on the ground floor. You took the minimum salary. You got trained. You got good exposure. And then you you went up. And after a couple of years, if you were good, you would be running your own show somewhere. Yep. And so now the thing with the mini room that they're saying is so pernicious is the streamers will hire a bunch of writers, pay them scale, which is the minimum, and then decide to move forward with the show, take the work of the mini room and only keep the senior writers when they make the actual show. So if you're super junior, you're not getting that experience for the full season. Right. And when the network model was like, you wanted people to tune in every week, right? So you wanted to, you wanted to sell the ads, you wanted to keep the ratings up and the subscription streaming model, it's about subscriber growth. So binging versus releasing things on a weekly basis. So we've talked about this, how Last of Us was released episodically, same with Succession, but others, like the Netflix model is to just drop everything at once and let people watch the whole thing if they want to. And what that does is that can compress production time. So you don't necessarily need writers working for you know, 40 weeks to make a show. And then those writers need more shows to keep themselves afloat for a year. Uh, it's interesting because especially if you're if you're ordering, like like for example, we were talking about the Diplomat earlier in this episode. They're probably writing the next season right now. I, I, I would I would assume it's not in production. It, you know, if there's a strike, those the writing of shows that are planned that are dropped in one go that could have issues with their production. But just like you were saying, like uh, Deborah Khan, who was the creator of The Diplomat, she was a staff writer on The West Wing. You can see herself working her way up to executive producer, and now she's a creator of a show, executive producer, and the writer of the show. But, I mean, that takes a long... I mean, that's, she's had a long career. In the writer's room, it's like you start out as an assistant or a staff writer, and then within seven or eight years, if you're on a successful show, you can leave and show run, be a showrunner on right. another show. And right. so that was kind of the model. And there were bumps and bumps in pay and bumps in title along the way. And it was actually within Hollywood, as opposed to directing and acting, it was a more structured path to the top. And so some of the writers are now saying that the current model is really an existential threat to the writing industry. Because if this were to go on indefinitely, this mini room practice, then junior writers would probably just decide to do something else, right? When you're graduating college and you're like, do I want to be a writer and struggle to pay my rent forever? Or do I want to actually have something that could turn into a career? So it's becoming more of a lottery ticket when sure there's like the showrunners that are making nine figures, but how many writers are there and how many of them are going to hit those home runs? And if you're not getting the training, then what do you do if it doesn't work out? And another thing I'd point out is 10 years ago, so scale is the term for the minimum amount that that you can pay under the collective bargaining agreement. And it's totally acceptable to pay someone scale when they're starting out. Yeah. But when yeah. they become mid-level and senior, scale is a harder thing to live on. And so in the past 
10 years ago, 33% of writer comp was writers received scale. Now it's closer to 50%. And so with back end drying up, it really is a tougher business for the writers. So I'm sympathetic to them. I just don't know how much leverage they have over the studios. When you say, when we talked about mini rooms, do you have any examples like just so that we can picture what that looks like? The mini room, I believe, was actually an exception created out of the, I think out of the pandemic. But the idea in the past, like the network model, you would work on a pilot. Yeah. And if the pilot got picked up, which there was no guarantee, but if the pilot got picked up, the team that worked on the pilot and the showrunner would get to pick their team and then they would do the whole season. Right. So it was like 90% of pilots didn't get picked up, but if they did, then you were good. And if they didn't get picked, like you weren't expecting it to get picked up. And they had pilot season. Right. Now, one of the ways the streamers would differentiate themselves with writers was they'd say, well, we're not going to make you do a pilot. We'll order the whole thing. Right. So if you work on our show, we're going to guarantee you that you'll have a whole season, right? We'll make the pilot the first episode and we're guaranteeing the order. But the mini room is the corollary to the pilot process. And it wasn't supposed to be that way. Yeah, because now it's almost like you might see a season on, on Netflix, but you might not see a second season, but you'll see the first full season. If you think back to like shows that were really popular early 2000s, late 90s, um, if you rewatch The Sopranos and you look at episode one in comparison to episode two, because episode one was the pilot, and you can tell that James Gandolfini's Tony Soprano has a completely different accent in episode one versus episode two, because they had done the pilot and then it got picked up and then they went and did the rest of the season. And he had obviously like uh, evolved the character and the accent. And I always thought that was interesting. If you look at any all those shows that the pilot was always so different from the rest of the season ones. Yeah, because there was usually a, a huge lag between when in the network model, when the pilot was made and when the series was ordered. So the mini room, I think, evolved out of that, but it does have a lot of the dynamics of the pilot because it's a smaller upfront investment. You're not taking the risk of a whole series order. And then if you like it, you can move forward. If you don't, you're not necessarily as committed. But the problem is that the people who work on the mini room don't always get attached to the show if it is ordered. And it's a ton of work, apparently. Uh, that sucks. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you're saying, it's, it's a subscription business. And now these studios and platforms just need so much more content than before. I mean, if you think about network television, there's only so many slots of shows that can go in there. And now it's like, it doesn't really matter. Just put right. more and more shows out. I'm done with The Diplomat. Now what's next? Now what's next? Now what's next? Give me more, give me more. Right, me yeah, more. because it's not about necessarily ratings and ad sales. It's about subscription. And yeah. that, change, that fundamental change impacts the schedule, impacts the quality of life for these writers. And they're, they just want stricter rules applying to streaming to make it a more sustainable thing. And if you tell me like writers adjusted for inflation are making 23% less than they yes, did 10 years ago. And granted, like the streaming platforms, their stocks have been down over the last year because of interest rates or whatever. But like Netflix has been arguably doing really well yeah. um, from a financial perspective. And it's not, I don't blame platforms for, you know, using the rules to their advantage. They collectively negotiate as long as they're in compliance yeah. with it. I mean, there's but, all costs at the end of the day. Well, the writers and the their reps are preparing for a strike. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like it's just puffery. We'll yeah. See. Yeah, let's see, and uh, we'll report on it. I mean, that's it's coming up soon. So good breakdown, Paul, as usual. Thank you. We'll update everyone on what's going on with the writer's strike. And until then, great show, Paul. Thanks, for everyone, for tuning in. 
Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to and listen. And follow us on Better Call Paul the podcast on Instagram. And uh, Paul, I look forward to gardening with you. So yeah, stay tuned. We'll set it up. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>